Well, good morning. I told you last week that I was going to preach about groups this morning, but I changed my message yesterday, which caused me a lot of extra work, but uh, I'll give you the group message eventually. But it's interesting because of all the things that are going on in the world, and you listen to different podcasts, and you watch news, and you listen to Christian radio, and you find out where people's minds are. And I always go back to a quote by the famous reformer Martin Luther. He said, he who says he preaches the word and doesn't address the issue of the day is only deceiving himself. So in light of that, what do we do with all this chaos in the world today? Now, someone sent me something about a plucked chicken yesterday. You know who you are. I won't read that. But I'll give you the concept. And basically, the idea was a man grabbed a chicken, held it up in front of an audience, and began to pull all the feathers off of it as he was explaining to them what he was going to do. The poor chicken was in turmoil. Can you imagine being plucked alive? You'd think after somebody plucked all the feathers off of you, the chicken would leave. But when the man threw it down at his feet, instead of the chicken running off, it ran around his legs and hovered around him in fear and trepidation trying to get itself warm. And oftentimes that's what happens when people are led by a dictator. Instead of running from him like you would think they would, they gravitate toward him because of fear or other reasons. And that's exactly what happens in our world today. So I want to share something from God's Word this morning. It's found in 2 Thessalonians, if you'd like to turn there. And those of you who are familiar with this passage know that it's a passage where Paul addresses the issue of the day of the Lord. Now, what is the day of the Lord? I don't want to confuse you, nor do I want to bore you. But let me say this, there is some debate over the issue of the day of the Lord. If you go back in the Old Testament, you find out that the day of the Lord was a time of judgment. It was a day of God's wrath that was poured out. It's, it wasn't something that was a designated time. It was something that God would say he was going to do. And when he poured that wrath out, that was considered the day of the Lord. So that happened several times during the Old Testament. There's also a period of time waiting us ahead yet in the future called the day of the Lord. And we believe, or let me just say this, I'll put my personal pronoun here, I believe that that is a day directed by God, which was spoken of in the Old Testament, called the time of Jacob's trouble or the time of Israel's trouble. It will not only impact the nation of Israel as a form of judgment, but it will also be impacting worldwide. Now, all of that's interesting because several years ago, we would have struggled to have imagined that it would be possible for someone to have control over the world. But now just imagine, over the past year and a half or so, how easy it would be to control a travel system and an economic system off of just one mandate that's made. I'll give you a for instance. Imagine if the COVID vaccine right now... For those who do not take it, imagine if they told you you could not shop in a grocery store or you could not shop at a bank or you could not travel outside of a certain bound if you did not have this. Now, you and I know that that was almost something that was right on top of us. You know, whether you're pro-vaccine, 
anti-vaccine or somewhere in the middle. That doesn't matter to us. We don't care. That's another issue. That's your personal opinion. But the point is how that could have been the dominating factor in deciding whether or not you could travel or trade or your freedom. And by the way, that was accepted not just in one country, but it was in multiple countries. So we see the strengthening of governments being able to impose mandates and dictates on people, limiting and closing down freedom in all different ways. It is on us. We have been conditioned and preconditioned for this concept of a takeover. Now, where do we fit as God's people in the midst of that? Now, it's interesting to watch because I share this with you from a pastor's heart, trying to say that my whole thesis this morning is this. No matter what happens in the world around us, believers should not be shaken. Are, are you hearing me? We should not be shaken. Believers should be people with the most confidence of anybody else in the world because let me ask you this question. Do we hold our life so dear that we would be willing to forsake everything else for self-preservation? I mean, is that supposed to be the life of a believer? If, if that is our philosophy of life, that the only thing that matters is my survival then I would challenge you to go back and read God's holy word, and especially from the lips of the man who wrote this letter this morning, who said, I do not count my life dear. But I count one thing to be dear, and that is the glory of my Savior, knowing that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And therefore, I will not be shaken. Paul was not afraid of death. God's people should not be afraid of death. The song we just sang that Jay said, the grave has no what? No grip. It has no hold on me. Why? Because the moment I pass from this life, I go directly into the Lord's presence. So how do we live in light of all of this turmoil? Aren't you glad you asked that question? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to read the last two verses in this chapter because oftentimes when it's addressed, these are not the verses that are mentioned. But remember, this was one letter made up of three chapters and it was meant to be read together and that's called context. One verse can't be taken apart from any of the three chapters in this book. And so for whatever reason, 2 Thessalonians, talking about the day of the Lord and the man of sin, whatever that was reason that was for, this is what Paul says it was for. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, personally, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, look at all the things he gave us. I could preach a sermon on this. He loved us. He gave us eternal comfort. Believer, do you know this morning that you have a comfort from him that is not temporary? Paul said it's eternal. That means it's supposed to be residing in our life now. And not only now, but forever. It's an eternal comfort and good hope. 
Look at that. Boy, I, here I might preach another sermon. It's just love, eternal comfort, and a good hope. And that good hope doesn't just come because of anything. It comes through grace. Now listen to what the God who gave us these things hopes for our life in light of this. May he comfort your hearts. What does that mean? To comfort a heart. That means to take the anxiety of life, the turmoil, the stress, the biting the fingernails because we're so worried about everything that's going on that we're so worked up that, you know, we just got to control everything. And if we can't control it there, then we'll just control it here. May the Lord Jesus himself and God the Father calm down the hearts of his people and strengthen you. That's what the word establish means. Give you some kind of footing under your feet where that every time something blows and happens, we're not all over the place. May he strengthen us or establish us in every good work and word. Now, the practical implication of this is when the world freezes up because of fear and confusion, what should God's people be doing? We should be working, we should be living our life in full confidence, and we should be sharing words of hope and words of comfort and words of encouragement with all the people around us who do not have that. Now, if you walk away from the message today and you don't get anything else, make sure you get this. Of all people in the world who are to be comforters and encouragers and people who are firm in their faith, it is the people who have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. We don't get our, hump, our comfort from CNN. We don't get it from Fox News. We certainly don't get it from the tabloids or podcasts or people's opinions about what's going on. We get it from right here in God's Word. Now, since I've poured all that on you, what was going on in this book that caused it to be written? Paul wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians basically to comfort them because they had questions about what happened to their loved ones who had died. They were afraid that if someone died in the Christian life, they were going to miss out on all the blessings and the goodness of God's plan. And Paul wrote them, 1 Thessalonians, and he said this, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. Now, the word ignorant is not bad. You know, when your parents used to say, you're ignorant. Ignorant actually just means you don't know. You're ignorant of something. You don't have enough knowledge to link something together. Paul said, I don't want you as believers to be ignorant. Some translations say uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. And he goes on to explain that those who are in Christ... Now, what does that mean? That is a, that is a technical phrase used by Paul to mean that people who are baptized with the Spirit, that simply means they are placed in the body of Christ. That's what in Christ means. They've been baptized by the Spirit and placed into the body of Christ. Those who are in Christ will not be left out at the return of the Lord. 
In fact, they will go before those who are alive and remain. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with him. Now, Paul shared that great truth with them, and then he talked to them in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians about the time of the day of the Lord. And he said, the day of the Lord, which is a period of judgment, not, not the rapture, not the taking away of God's people, but the day of the Lord that is judgment, will come like a thief in the night. And when men are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, them. Just like a woman who's getting ready to have a baby. She, she knows it's coming, she doesn't know when, but boom, when it comes, she can't stop it. And so he had revealed this truth to them that believers will be caught up with Christ, but there will be a day of judgment on the earth and persecution. And, and here's what happened. They started listening to Facebook and social media and crazy preachers and TV anchors and everybody else, and they told them, since you're in the midst of all this trouble, you are in the day of the Lord. You're in the tribulation period. And boy, it got these believers worked up. I mean, they were worked up. Just like people in the church today can get worked up. Because there are so many views on will the church go through the tribulation period or will the church be exempt from the tribulation period. Now, if you listen to some people, they will say that the church, that is Christ's body, will be put through the tribulation period. Do you know how many different views there are of whether the church goes through the tribulation period? You want me to confuse you some? There is called pre-tribulation, which means that the church will be taken out before. Pre means before. There is post-trib, which means that the church will go through the tribulation period and not be delivered until the end. There is mid-tribulation, which says that the faithful people in the church will go halfway through it, and they'll endure some persecution, but then they won't go through the rest, so they'll be taken out mid-trib. And then there's pre-wrath, if you need some more confusion, meaning that God will leave them in there until their wrath really gets heavy, and then he'll pull them out one by one according to their faithfulness. Now, isn't that confusing? You say, well, what are we? What are we? Well, we, I should say I, am a pre-tribulational. Uh, that, that would be my take, that the church will be taken before the tribulation period happens. And I have many reasons for that, and I could bore you to death with it this morning. Maybe that's a whole lesson. Maybe you want to sit on an eschatology class sometime that I teach and be put to sleep. But that is exciting for me because... You don't just find the pre-tribulational argument in one chapter or verse. It is throughout the entire New Testament and the Old Testament. There, are, there is a reasoning for this, and there's a reasoning why we believe that. But the poor Thessalonians thought that they were right in the middle of the tribulation period. Now, let's look at the text really quick. First, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Notice what Paul says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit 
or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now let me stop right there and go through some of this lecture. William Barclay, who was a famous man in the past, said there is great value in the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, and that is it guarantees us that history is going somewhere. By the way, we believe that history is not like Hindus say, that it's just circular and it just keeps repeating. We believe it's linear. We think that God is actually moving the nations of the world to his plan where he is going to bring glory to himself upon this earth when he brings the kingdom from heaven down to the earth to rule and reign and Jesus will be on a throne in Jerusalem. Literally, a throne. And the whole earth will be uh, subject to him in a period known as the kingdom reign. By the way, that's what Jesus taught the disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done upon the earth as it is in heaven. Now, to confuse you some more, there are some people who do not think there is such thing as a literal physical kingdom of the earth. They would say there is no literal kingdom. And there are churches all around us with good brothers in them. Please don't, you know, don't shoot them. They're just wrong. That sounds arrogant, doesn't it? I, I don't mean to be arrogant. The only reason I say that is, is if they're wrong, uh, the reason why is because God's word says there will be a literal kingdom on the earth. The only way you can get around a literal kingdom on the earth is to spiritualize it and say that the kingdom is not something that the God's word says it is. It's something mystical, something in your heart, something that's just love, joy, and peace. It's not where Jesus literally reigns and the twelve apostles were told they would reign under him and the church would reign with him. That's all spiritual, they would say. Well, take the whole Old Testament and throw it away. Because it looked for that day. And by the way, take Jesus' words when his disciples said, Lord, what are you going to give us? We've left houses and lands. And he said what? I'm going to let you reign upon the earth with me on my throne. Now, either Jesus meant that or he didn't. Good commentators, and they are scholarly men, err in this position. But the bottom line is simply this. There is value in the second coming and the teaching of the return of Christ. So Paul gave three purposes for this letter. These are just some teaching notes. I'm not going to go into this. I'm just going to hammer on number two. He wrote this to clarify that the events that preceded the day of the Lord would dispel false teaching as to whether or not they were in the tribulation period. So this is how you know whether you're in the tribulation period, by the way. I'm going to tell you this morning, and you're going to be armed with this information so you can always know whether you're going through the tribulation period or not, okay? Aren't you glad that? Okay, I'll just skip through all these comments because uh, basically what Paul's doing is he's contrasting in verse 1 our being gathered together, this is what he mentioned back in 1 Thessalonians 4, to the day of the Lord, that is the tribulation period. And he's writing this to, com to clarify they're not in the day of the Lord. They haven't missed the rapture, neither are they in the tribulation period. Now, how does he firm this up? 
and I'll just get on through this. This is what they thought. Look at the screen. Let me see if I can get my pointer to work. Here's what the Thessalonians thought. Christ had died on the cross, and they thought they had lived in the last day, and they thought the rapture had already happened, and they missed it. And they thought that they were right there in the middle of the tribulation period, and they thought that they were waiting on Jesus' second coming. They had missed it. Because somebody, you know, Paul gave them three reasons, either by a word Somebody stood up in a congregation during a prophecy conference and said, Behold, you're in the tribulation period. Paul was wrong. Look at all the suffering around you. Look at what's going on. He was wrong. Or somebody wrote a letter and said, Paul wrote it, and they read it to the church. There was all kinds of confusion. But they felt they were right in the middle. But Paul was correcting their view, and here's what he was saying. And remember now, this was back in the first century. You Thessalonians are here. There's going to be some increasing apostasy. There's going to be the catching away. And then the restrainer will be removed. The Antichrist will be revealed. And then Jesus will return. This is what he was saying to them. So they perceived they were in the middle. Paul was correcting their view and simply saying, you're not there yet because you can't be there because certain things have to happen. Now, what are those things? You say, well, good, get to it. All right, I am. Three sources of the rumor. By the way, rumors are interesting, aren't they? I read this past week about a rumor where Abraham Lincoln, somebody said that you know he was like Elvis, that they saw him. 22 years after the poor man died, did you know they exhumed Lincoln's body to make sure his body was in the grave because of a rumor? They put him back in the grave, and lo and behold, a few years later, somebody else said that somebody had stolen his body. Do you know they exhumed Lincoln twice to open the poor casket uh, to see whether or not he was still there? And guess what? He hadn't moved an inch. (laughs) All of that over a rumor. Isn't it amazing what rumors can do in our life? Now, just think about if you're the subject of a rumor. Okay, are you listening? I'm going to give you some good practical advice this morning. Let's say somebody shares a rumor about you. What should you do? By the way, we live in a social media age, and y'all are going to think I'm nasty here, but I'm not. I'm, I'm going to tell you what somebody told me. They said, every mouth has a platform. Never has there been a time like that before. Everybody's opinion can instantly go out to hundreds and thousands of people. And everybody's got a platform. So somebody spreads rumors about you that aren't true. What is the best thing you could possibly do? Well, in some cases, not a thing. Leave it alone. You say, well, they've discredited my honor. I've got to take up for myself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Leave it alone. People who know you and know your character will know it's not true anyway. There may be some personal people you have to go to and share the truth with, but don't get into a keyboard war with some person that's never going to be satisfied anyway. Leave it alone. But that's what happened in this church. Paul says, Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter. Now let me, can I teach you something this morning? Jay got to. Go back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn back there. During the time of the Thessalonians, P. 
people were in the church, the New Testament, they did not have the Bible like we have it this morning. And during this time, they would oftentimes, at the beginning or during a service, a New Testament prophet would stand up and say, I have a word from God. Now, if you do that today, we're going to ask you to please sit down. Not that we're, not that we're mean, but we have the words of God. But during that time, before the Bible was written, people would stand up and say, Thus says the Lord. And then they would prophesy. This happened in the book of Acts, where Agabus stood up and said that the Apostle Paul would be bound and taken to Rome. That's how the New Testament church worked. But Paul gave them principles on how they were to deal with this. And notice what he says. I'm in 1 Thessalonians 5.20. Do not despise prophecies. In other words, there are times when you need to listen to them in this early stage in the church. Verse 21, but test everything. You know, if, if Joe Crazy Man stands up and starts telling you something, what does Paul say? Test everything. Is that a reliable guy that's sharing that prophecy? Or, you know, is he kind of, you know, a guy that you're questionable about? Notice what he says. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. If a prophet were to stand up and he were to say something that would ultimately lead to evil, what does Paul say? He says, you know, listen to it. Take it in one ear. You better evaluate it. If it's something good, okay, we'll accept that. But if it's something evil, run. Don't pay any attention to it. Well, apparently, someone stood up in the New Testament church back in Thessalonica and said they were in the day of the Lord. So Paul says, by spoken word, <clears throat> by spirit, or by letter. Now, as we think about this, and I'm not going to take too much time to go in that, you can imagine how Paul would have felt if he had planted this church and somebody came in behind him and started teaching all kinds of crazy doctrine. Now, you don't understand that until you've been in ministry. When you take years and years of your life, and, you know, by the way, nobody understands what goes on in the pastorate unless you've been in the pastorate. You just don't know. You're intimately involved with people's life. You know the hurts and the pains. You know other things about them that no one ever knows, and you will never tell them. And you take time and hours and hours out of your week to try to share something that's going to help build their life build their confidence so that they have firm footing under themselves and they, they understand the basics of God's Word and they can handle it. They're not shaken. You know, Paul would tell people all the time, don't be shaken, stand firm. We want you to be firm in your faith. And then, uh, can you imagine being taken off the scene and then some, somebody come in and start teaching them craziness? causing all kinds of confusion and causing everything that they've had built into their life to be questioned. There's, there's nothing wrong with questioning teaching, by the way. You should be a student of God's Word. And you should not believe things just because I say them. You should believe them because they're in God's Word. Now, I would hope that I've built enough credibility that you would give me the benefit of the doubt on some things. And I'll tell you when some things are my opinion. But when it's God's Word, it's not about me or anybody else. It's about God's Word. 
And so Paul here has a burden for these people. Now, notice what he says. And I've already read this, so I won't read it again. He says, there are three events that have to happen before the day of the Lord comes. Some people see two. I would say three. Okay? And here they are. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Paul writes, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day... Okay, what is that day? You all answer me out loud. Thank you. The day of the Lord. It's right up in verse 2. For that day will not come unless the apostasy... The ESV translates it, the rebellion comes first. So what has to happen before the day of the Lord comes? Number one, the apostasy. Now, what is that? Now, by the way, we can go down the list. There's all kinds of people who say, well, the apostasy is this, it's this, it's this. Okay, the apost- apostasy means the turning away from. What used to be held to as dear and truthful is now turned away from. You could also call it secularization. By the way, did you know that Christianity in years past, through the Reformation and later on, was the dominant science? As a matter of fact, theology was called the queen of the sciences. What does that mean? That means when anything was tested in the realm of science, and by the way, science simply means the study of something. So when some ignoramus says, believe the science, the science of what? Science means the study of something. It doesn't mean definite answers. It means observation of things and then trying to come to a conclusion about what you observed. But it's not absolute truth. Because it can change with a variable. But theology was seen as the queen of sciences. So when something happened in astronomy or something happened in another area, they would take that science and they would bring it under the word of God to see whether it lined up. Now there were problems with that because some people during that time, you know, they were geocentric instead of heliocentric. They believed the earth was the center and not the sun. But by the way, a Christian... A Christian astronomer is the one who argued against the Roman Catholic Church and said, the earth is not central, the sun is. And the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, did not want to change that. And so he got in trouble. But that was the the shift and the change. But now notice what's happened. All the way down through the centuries, now we're at this point where the Bible is not the queen of the science, it's not even allowed in the science. It's gone. When you study history, especially the history of the nation of Israel, do you know the number one thing that caused Israel to turn into apostasy? Has anybody ever studied that? Go ahead and shout it out if you have. Nobody wants to, I know. Some of you know this. The number one thing that caused Israel to go into apostasy was sexuality. The reason they bowed to the Baals and they bowed to the Asherah pole 
And they did all of these things is because they had thrown off all restraints of sexuality. Now I want you to hear me for a minute. What is being propelled in the West today, no, no, absolutely no morals when it comes to sexuality. I, I can't even, it's hard for me to even stand up here and share this. It's no longer, you know, a man and a woman. Now it's a man and a man or three men or a man and three women, three women and another man or a they and a they and a who. I mean, it is everywhere today. And I shared with you back in a series earlier in the year that one of the strategies to destabilize the society was to sexualize the children. A well-orchestrated event to absolutely just tear all the foundations out from under small children all the way up so that they are programmed to have absolutely no moral filter. The apostasy, the turning away from truth. Now, folks, I don't know how to say this, but all of that is set in place. I mean, not just in the West. You know, it usually hits Europe first and comes to America. It is set in place and it's spanning its its fingers, its grips, down into South America now. And I hate to say this, the United States tied federal money into funding that certain countries that got our money had to teach this. They had to teach it. If they didn't teach it, they couldn't get the money. And so our great, quote, nation is forcing this around the world, this immorality. And by the way, people want money, and when you tie money to anything, unfortunately, people will bow. They will bow. And by the way, as a Christian, that's why Paul tells us, do not be lovers of money. Because my dear friend, money will make you do some strange things. The apostasy must happen first. And then, notice what he says, the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction, the one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Go down into verse 8. What's going to happen to him? Then the lawless one will be revealed, who the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Yes, he's a powerful man, but he'll be done away with in seconds when Christ returns. So all his glory is going to go right down the tube. So the first thing you have is the rebellion, the turning away, and then you have the man of sin or the man of lawlessness revealed. Now, hold on for a minute. I'm going to tell you why I am a pre-trib, pre-millennial person. That, that is, we are taken out before the rapture. I'm at the rapture before the tribulation. And we come back with Christ at the kingdom. Why do I believe that? Well, if you go back in the Old Testament 
and you begin to trek your way through, and I'm going to skip all the way up to the prophet Daniel, because Jesus quoted Daniel in Matthew chapter 24. Daniel in chapter 7, 9, and 11 talks about a little horn, a willful king, and the man of sin who will come. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, said, Do you remember when the prophet Daniel wrote about the man of lawlessness? When you see that set up in the temple, like Daniel said, flee to the mountains. Because the tribulation has come. Paul is simply saying what Jesus said, what Daniel said, and what all of the Old Testament prophets predicted before, that the the way you know that the tribulation period has come is the man of sin is revealed on the spot. He is made known. Now listen to me this morning. You are not in the tribulation period unless the Antichrist has been revealed. The apostasy has occurred. And there's going to be one more thing that has to happen. God is going to remove the restrainer. Okay, so let's, let's read. I'm going to pick up here in verse 5. He's been talking about the Antichrist here. Paul, Paul writes in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now that's not chastening. He's not scourging them. But he's telling them, when I was you, I, I talked about this. Now, by the way, that goes to show us, especially those of us in ministry, that Paul felt like end-time events were important. I hear people say all the time, well, prophecy is a secondary issue. Okay? In whose book? Apparently, it was pretty important to the Apostle Paul because every time he went, he talked about the coming of the Lord. He talked about the importance of Jesus' coming to daily living. He was a very balanced man. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Sometimes we hear people say, well, with new believers, you only talk about this and this and that. Well, the Thessalonians hadn't been saved but a year or so. Here Paul's giving them information about the tribulation period, the day of the Lord, the Antichrist, what they are to expect. He was preparing them. Do you not remember these things when I, I told you? Verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now that he may be revealed in his time. I would like to say, no, Paul, we don't. Tell us exactly what is restraining them. Look in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. That's the ESV translation. He who restrains it, and he is out of the way. That is a masculine, singular pronoun for those of us who hate English. Sometimes it's necessary. It designates it to a specific person. Now, who is he who restrains? Is this God the Father? Is this God the Son? Is this God the Spirit? Now, I'm teaching you to be good theologians today, okay? Y'all, are y'all with me? Who was involved in creation? Please say Father, Son, Spirit. Uh, who was involved in the incarnation of Christ? Father, Son, Spirit. Who was involved in the death of Christ? 
Who was involved in the resurrection of Christ? Did y'all say Father, Son, Spirit? By the way, if you ever take a good theology class, you'll understand that the Trinity always works together. You don't find one of them over in one corner doing something, another and another. They always work together. Always. They work together in revelation of the Scriptures. They work together in the lives of people. They work together in end-time events. They work together in judgment. They work together in creation, resurrection, incarnation, everything. So can I offer, I might just write a book. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I believe that somehow or another this is referring to the Godhead. If you want to say the Holy Spirit, I would not argue with you a bit. I would just simply say it's in conjunction with the Father and the Son. Now, there are all kinds of different guesses. I'm not going to stand up here and bore you with it today. But the bottom line is, the man of sin cannot and will not be revealed until the apostasy and the restrainer is taken away. And by the way, God is the one who does that. Don't ever think that the tribulation period is the devil's. Please don't think that. And don't think it's the Antichrist's. It can't begin, and it can't start, and it won't end without God approving it to do so. Now, since he's in control, he's the one that decides when it starts. This leads to all kinds of questions. Is the Antichrist alive today? Now, let me give you a theory. This is my opinion. I personally, you know, that the devil is not omnipresent. Meaning, he can't be everywhere at once. He can only be in one place. He is a good administrator. Principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness of the air, he is an administrator. He has them in all different places. But he is in one place at one time. He is a spirit being. He does not have a body. And he can't be seen unless God allows him to be seen. But he always has a man. He always has a man. He knows the end time. He knows this. He knows he's going to get to empower someone and God's going to allow him to unleash his, his wrath on the earth. He always has a man. He doesn't know the timing. He just knows the certainty. And you hear people say all the time, well, Hitler and Stalin and look at all these people. They were demon possessed. We don't doubt that at all. Sure, they probably were. And he was probably the one that was leading most of them. But he always has someone ready. Now, we could go off into a long territory here explaining who's the Antichrist, who's Gog and Magog. Don't get lost in all that stuff, folks. The bottom line is God has it lined up. It's going to happen just like he says it's going to. But it won't happen until he allows it and actually initiates it to happen. So the apostasy has to happen, the Antichrist is revealed, and the restrainer is removed. Verse 8, Then when the lawless one will be revealed, who the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's how quick his day is over. Verse 9, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, are y'all tracking with me? He's got his man. With all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. 
Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, sometimes I'm just going to comment on this for a second. Sometimes people preach this all the time. You know, if you ever hear the truth of the gospel and the rapture happens and you're left behind, God will blind you and you'll never be able to believe it. Who said that? Who said that? Find that for me. What this text says is those who are loving the Antichrist, loving his false miracles, loving his lies and deception, God will send them additional strong delusion that they will continue to believe the lie and they will be judged. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and you have never accepted the gospel. I wouldn't take a chance. I would make sure I was right with Jesus this morning before I left. Because it may be your last chance. But this is what God's word says about the lawless one. Can I say to you, we're not in the day of the Lord. Now, let me just quickly share with you my opinion. Okay, this is my opinion. And it's going to go fast. A lot of times we look at the West and America and Europe and we sit there and go, oh, look at the West, look what's happening in America, look what's happening at the White House, we're, in the, we're, we're fixing to go in the tribulation period. Stop looking at America, please. America is not the epicenter for what's going to happen. The whole purpose of the tribulation period is judgment on the nation of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 God said, I am going to pour out trouble on Jacob like has never been and never will be before. God is going to break them. Ninety plus percent of the nation of Israel who's living back in the land is anti-Jesus. Did you hear me? Most are atheists. A very few are Orthodox Jews. The rest are agnostic, atheistic, secular. They want nothing to do with Jesus at all. They think that he's an imposter. God is going to use the nations of the world, probably Russia, probably China, most definitely the Islamic countries who are around them, specifically Turkey and Syria, and the other nations that are surrounding Israel, Iran, probably rebuilt Iraq. Did you know that in... Iraq today, they are rebuilding Babylon. I posted a little article on faith life. Now, don't, don't get all worked up. Did you know that for years and years, they have the complete temple design of the temple in, the, in Israel ready to be built? They're training priests. They have been for years, so don't get all worked up. They've got the red heifer picked out, and they've been sent it off and ate it 20 times. They've got another red heifer. I mean... My point is, they are ready to rebuild the temple at any minute. They have trained priests. They have all the instruments. And you know what else they have? What nobody ever suspected they would have in the land of Israel. A natural resource under the Mediterranean Sea that's going to propel the nation of Israel economically to number one in the Middle East before long. They found a monstrous gas reserve. Did you know that they're actually over there right now getting ready to capture that? 
Their plan is to take that gas and feed it up into Europe and be the supplier of the Western world. The, the little nation of Israel will be the richest nation in history. Now, if you read Ezekiel 37, 38, there is something in that passage where God says that he's going to take a ruler and a land and another horde of people and put a hook in their jaw and he's going to drag them down to that land because they want the resources in the nation of Israel. Now, hear me carefully. That is not the Antichrist. That's going to be what precipitates the Antichrist. But God is hes going to lure them down to that land. Maybe that's two battles. I don't know. Don't ask me all those things. Nobody really knows. But the bottom line is, when you look at what's happening, it is lined up perfectly. That it could actually just accelerate. You know, China could, China could and probably will take Taiwan. They, they're probably going to do that. Russia is eventually going to take Ukraine, more than likely. Now, I could be wrong. I'm not a prophet. You know, maybe something happened. But the point is, these nations are going to strengthen, and both Russia and China are end-time players. We think we know that from God's Word. America's never mentioned, because we're over here worrying about wokeism and inflation, and we don't have enough money to pay our bills, enough people to fill our military, and enough common sense to read our own constitution. Because we're all concerned not to ever offend anybody and to make sure everybody's woke and, and go on down the line. And we have neutered our military. So where is America? I mean, well, they're just sitting over there and they'll probably join with some coalition. And who knows what will happen. But the bottom line is this. The day of the Lord hasn't come. Now, I don't leave you with all that. I leave you with this. What are the truths we should take from this? Number one, we should not be shaken or alarmed by every conflict in the world events. Don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed. Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of wars until he comes. There will be many people who stand up in my name and say, I'm the Christ and I'm the Christ. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. But when you see the man of sin stand up and work miracles, brother, you have entered the day of the Lord. Now, you may be there. I won't. I won't. And John Piper, when we go up, we're, we all of us uh, dispensation, we're going to look over at him and go, we told you so! We told you! We're not going through the tribulation period. Paul told the Thessalonican church in 1 Thessalonians 5 and several times, God has not appointed you to wrath! Now either he told the truth or he lied. And by the way, when you read 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, guess what comes first? 4... That's the rapture. And guess what comes next? The day of the Lord. That's the tribulation period. Four comes before five. The rapture comes before the day of the Lord. We are not to be shaken. Second of all, we must learn to stand firm in God's word and his plan. Jesus told the story about he who builds his life on sand. What happens? The winds come, the waters beat, and it's the foundation's knocked away. But whoever builds his life on the rock, the winds came, the waters and everything howled, 
and he did not move. We build our life on the word of God. Now, just because we do that, listen to me carefully, don't be ridiculous. Everybody should have food. Everybody should have anything to prepare yourself for weeks, a couple of weeks of, of needing help. You should, ha- you should do that. You should have m- some money set aside. You should have a way to take care of your family. You've got to be able to pr- protect your family. The power grid could go out for a month, and that could happen. We're not in the day of the Lord. Americans would think they would be. Can you all imagine if Kroger and Walmart and everything shut down for a month? Well, people go crazy here. Well, that could happen. Very well could. We need to prepare ourselves for that. But please don't panic. Please don't panic. Don't go out and buy all the toilet paper up. Please. I'm simply saying this is common sense. This is just what, this is what people do. We should prepare for storms, power outages, and so forth. When you, when you have that with you, it kind of gives you a security blanket. Did you know that? That's common sense now. Don't fret. But at the same time, stand firm in God's word. You should not be biting your fingernails every time the news comes on and you find out somebody invades somebody. Listen to me, church family. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Only the crazy people in D.C. believe that people are going to uh, go around and sing Kumbaya and everybody's going to love each other and nobody's ever going to offend anybody again. What kind of ridiculousness is that? We live in a world of people who are power-hungry. And it's going to get worse. Stand firm. And then finally, we must learn to rest in God's comfort and God's strength. He will take care of His people. Do we trust Him to do that? You know, even if God allows us to go through some tumultuous time and some time of trouble. Are, are you all hearing me? I'm trying to say this now in case, you know, heaven forbid it would ever happen. What are we going to do? Run to our own home and self-preserve? Or are we the church who loves one another, who bears one another's burden, who cares for one another? Are we only going to be in self-preservation mode or are we going to be the body that takes care of each other. You know, I've shared this before many times. Probably would never happen. We're not going to let anybody starve, folks. And we're here for one another. Did you know that? We're here to share with one another, to be with one another, to care for one another. And between all the people in, in our church, we would do quite well. And we would care for one another. Because that's what God wants us to do. So I share those things with you to comfort your heart, strengthen you, and stand firm, and don't be shaken. Because the day of the Lord is not here yet. Now, do you know Christ Jesus as your Savior? Paul wrote here in Second Thess- Thessalonians, which is a wonderful little truth. He says... <clears throat> Verse 13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Why? Brothers who are beloved in the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Remember the Thessalonians, the first century? They were the first people to be church planted. 
we cho- he chose you to be saved as the first fruits through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, the good news of Christ, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll let you study that one. You may obtain his glory. So therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. We remember what he did.